There you go. Interesting things you learn in seminary that you would not otherwise. You should all go. It's a lot of fun. Well, that's not entirely true. It's mostly fun. The choice is yours. <laughs> so Wait, the, what was that? Double Dare? No, um, uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple. The choice is yours and yours alone. I guess so. You remember the Nickelodeon show? Legends yeah, of the Hidden Temple? Uh, I do. Yeah, you're right. That was what that quote was Silver from. Snakes. Ooh, Barracudas. I did watch a lot of that show as a kid. Well, I've had fun these past four weeks doing this follow-up podcast with Todd. I'm so grateful for him giving of his time and being willing to have these conversations with me. Just a reminder, we'll be beginning tomorrow, August 1st, our um, season of prayer as we move into a time of centering prayer as a congregation. We invite you to join us in that. We'll be using a book called 40 Days to a Closer Walk with God. And the link to that book will be in the description of this podcast. And so we invite you to join us on that journey. And if you're not catching this podcast till later, you can just kind of jump in whenever. Um, you don't have to follow the exact 40 days we are, um, but it's something we believe as a, a church that we can kind of live in this season of expecting God to be present with us and us being present with God, as opposed to always just petitioning and asking and, and being in a kind of this hurried mode of prayer. We just want to sit and be present with the divine, and we invite you to do that also. So thanks again for um, all the feedback, all the affirmation about these podcasts. They've been a ton of fun for us, and uh, we are just glad that you like them also. And like I said, um, be on the lookout for some more of them beginning in two weeks. Welcome back, everybody. Todd and Woods here for week four of our podcast sermon sermon series follow-up on the book of Ephesians, Four by Grace, as Woods has titled it. Todd, I'm going to drive this week, um, and just speaking on the sermon from this past week, week four, uh, was pretty amazing, and I want to just be able to ask Woods some questions and let him elaborate more on some of the things he talked about uh, from the stage on Sunday, and yeah, just kind of absorb more of the more of the word that we talked about on Sunday. So Woods started the sermon, uh, I hope you were there in person or able to listen to the podcast, uh, he, he truly brought the word, uh, he led off by letting us know what he might be talking about may be controversial, may offend some people, and I'm sitting here listening, saying, thinking I've been set up like someone that goes on a talk show and gets kind of lulled in <laughs> with some easy questions before the hardballs come. Uh, so for three weeks, he uh, he kind of took it easy on me, and now we'll, uh, we'll get into uh, some really good conversation. So Without further ado, and one more thing I wanted to comment on about the sermon itself is the conversations we're having um, about Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, um, the relationships between husbands and wives, children and parents, um, slaves and their masters. When you finished the sermon and you prayed, you brought up at the beginning of the sermon about how we you may offend some people. Uh, but in the end, you prayed, thank you for conviction, thank you for offense, uh, before you prayed over the Eucharist. And that was just really cool uh, that we're sitting here kind of elaborating on that conversation that you started on Sunday from the stage, and that we can do this, we can broadcast this and talk more about it mm-hmm. uh, in the country we live in, and just yeah. the, the state, we're not being persecuted for this. Uh, and that's just so cool. Yeah, it's... It is a luxury, right? I mean, not for... There's still people around the world that cannot freely worship, cannot freely talk about these things, and to which the, the things that I tried to affirm in my sermon are still illegal or are still societally looked down upon or whatever it might be. And you know, for the first you know 300 years of Christianity, Christians were killed for their 
you know, beliefs and such. And so it, it is a blessing to be able to be free in the ways in which we, we believe and the things we can have conversations about. But with that also comes, I think, a lull in our desire to, to learn more. Also, in our, we become very comfortable in our faith in the way that it has been, always it will be. We think, you know, I've been taught this way, so I believe it this way, and this will be. Yet, I think one of the best things God does for us is disturb us. It's to, to draw us out of the realities that we've lived in our entire lives. It's to say, I've accepted something because my family, my pastor, my whoever just told me to believe yeah. this, and so I did. Yet when we take it on on our own, we might say, well, I don't know that I still agree with that. I don't know that I still believe that. And that's truly what I think active faith is. It's to, to take faith seriously enough to ask questions and to engage with it. And when we do that, we might be offended because it might um, counteract the things that we've been taught. I remember the first time I started having beliefs that were a little bit different from my parents or a little mm-hmm. bit different than what my some of my you know Sunday school teachers might have taught me. Not that they're not wonderful people and they had the best intentions for me and not even say that they were wrong. I just started thinking things a little bit differently. And I felt super guilty about it. That's like, tough, yeah. I felt like there was going to be, like my parents, I'm going to have a conversation with them about this and they're going to like think I'm not a Christian anymore. They're not mm-hmm. going to, you know, they're going to disown me. And so, um, whereas that was a good place for me to be in my faith journey, it's also a scary place to be because when you're convicted... And when you're offended, um, you kind of have this isolation. You kind of feel like you're on an island. You wonder, does anybody else feel this way? Am I going to be ostracized from my friend group, my family group, my faith community? Um, Yet in that longing, in that kind of being disturbed, it's also kind of the the deepest place that we can encounter God. Um, Because, and sometimes you have nowhere else to turn, right? Yeah. It's like what some people say when they hit the bottom in like a, in some sort of situation, all you have to do is turn to a place where you can find hope. And I think in the same way in our beliefs, whenever we are starting to not know what to believe anymore, the only place we can turn to is to just, you know, cry out in ways we don't understand. And in that, I think God reveals new things to us. But I do think the community is important for helping us work through those things. Absolutely. That was what I was going to say is one thing I hope for this, this podcast and this week's sermon is that it starts you know, a handful of conversations. Um, I've, I've heard you say that uh, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith and not necessarily related to people doubting the word that we're talking about. I don't think I don't, right. there's not much in this in this particular scripture to doubt per se. But anyway, questions about how to read scripture, which is what we're about to talk, the first topic we'll cover. Yeah, Frederick uh, Beekner actually said that. I just quoted him. Yeah. Well, there you go. Someone, yeah, something you learned in seminary. I'll, I, the easy ones are, are easy for me to remember. <laughs> Uh, but hopefully that starts some conversations and, and for you or I, and me personally, just like you, um, as I feel like my faith has grown over the past few weeks, if, if people are listening and, and have, you know, turned over a stone in their faith that is a little uncomfortable, just know that we've both been there and are happy to talk about it. And that's, that's not a, you're not alone in that. Uh, I certainly kind of felt that way, uh, at times over the past few years. So it's cool to be able to just, uh, have further conversations about it yeah that's what taking your faith seriously means so the first topic we're going to try to cover three main things the first is a a big theme in this week was the way we read scripture and so you kind of the whole first part of your sermon was kind of prefacing that uh, and about going back to the historical context of the writer and how would we interpret this in their time versus our current day time. 
um, second topic about, you mentioned about household codes. That was a whole new idea for me. So we'll Mm -hmm. touch on that a little bit. And then mutuality and that whole idea that you named at the end of the sermon, you got a lot of feedback about that idea and how people thought that was cool. So I'd like to talk about that as well. So the way we read scripture, um, just you had a lot of good information about that. You quoted some wise person named McDonald. You quoted N.T. Wright. So I'd like to hear one or both of those again, if you don't mind, and just to kick us into that conversation. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of what I was trying to do with this sermon, and I think what we try to do in general, is to talk about Scripture in a way that is healthy and life-giving, um, but also mindful of the context. And sometimes people can kind of skirt away from trying to talk about the context because it's the Bible, so it's life-giving in that it's the Word of God, and God is speaking to us. Therefore, um, you know, it doesn't need interpretation. It doesn't need contextualization because we are able to think about it um, just read it on the page and God inspires us. Yet when we do that, sometimes it has dangerous implications because there's no such thing as being able to read the Bible in a vacuum. There is no objective Bible reading. When we read the Bible, we cannot escape our own experiences, our own biases, our own um, predispositions to theological beliefs that that might not even came from the Bible, but from somebody else. And so we bring all that with us. It's technically that word is called a hermeneutic. We have the lens through which we read scripture Mm -hmm. is called a hermeneutic. And all of us have certain lenses. And what contextualization tries to do is help us read the Bible um, and think about it in a way that is mindful of what was going on when this text was written. How are these people's worldviews influenced and what were they influenced by? Why would they be saying the things they're saying? Who are they addressing? All these different questions. You know, so it's historical criticism, it's literary criticism, all these different things. And Sometimes you, we can read the Bible in the devotional sense we talked about in week one, and it just be life-giving. Yet, if that's all we do, then sometimes um, we don't, we're don't. we not faithful to what the text is trying to be, what it's trying to do, and yeah. also how maybe we should be reconsidering some things. So Margaret McDonald said, In my view, this passage can speak to a modern context only if the interpreter makes the potentially problematic nature of the text clear and makes every effort to understand its meaning in an early church. It is only then that one may begin to discern the elements of this text that have a timeless voice. So the timeless voice is the devotional, it's the life-giving, it's the things we came to, the mutuality piece that we eventually got to. But I don't think it would have been faithful of me as a Bible reader and as a preacher and as a pastor to just get up there and talk about the mutuality. Because if I did that, I would not be sensitive to the people um, who might have a really difficult time with this text because it's still because it doesn't condemn slavery, right? Yeah. For those people who are, are new to Christianity or have been Christians for a while but have a trouble with the Bible, if I don't even acknowledge the fact that this scripture does not condemn slavery, but in a way almost like affirms its perpetuation, um, then then what are they going to think? That I'm just okay with slavery too? Right. Or that our church is okay with slavery? Um, and obviously we're not, and I'm not. And so I thought it was important for me to say those things. It's not that I'm trying to qualify or forgive the text. It's just trying to put us in that mindset. The same thing with the um, patriarchal language about, you know, the, the word submit is kind of problematic for people. And, I, mm-hmm. and um, I was talking to somebody else in our church about that this week, is that it's not so much that we don't all agree, maybe in some level, that there should be, you know, husbands should love their wives and wives should love their husbands. And if you had just said that, it made sense. However, I can't just start there. I've got to acknowledge that this is problematic for a lot of people, including myself, right? To yeah. get beyond that patriarchy. You can't 
just try to extract the uh, devotional reading fr- from arm's length without kind of taking in the scripture, letting it root in, acknowledging how troubling it can be. And as a Christian of any variety, denomination, it just, I think it's, you have to acknowledge it and make your heart hurt a little how it has been misused. And that's part of what makes these particular um, types of passages that are, that are rooted in their historical context problematic and you don't want to touch them or preach on them uh, is they have been misused. That's a, that's a real thing that Christians have done over the past 2000 years even uh, the past 50 years. I mean, civil rights. I mean, yeah. that was in the 1960s. People are still using the Bible as yeah. a way to say, like, segregation is a good thing. And that, um, you know, that, that there's a, a value difference based on your ethnicity. Um, and and that's, I mean, that's recent. That's not yeah. 2,000 years ago. Like, that was a couple of decades ago. Yeah. No, I very much appreciate. And that quote really, I don't know, brings it to light the importance to not be afraid to talk about it. And so in talking about it, when you kind of get into the weeds of these particular topics, um, my heading, husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants and masters, instead of slaves, my English standard version says bond servants. We'll talk about that interesting nugget of wisdom in a minute. But for each of those categories, what N.T. Wright said, Paul can't see a world without slavery the when, where you quoted him just like we wouldn't be able to see a world without electricity and that real life practical example just made me go oh it it, it made it very simple for me to put myself 2000 years ago i've never been there but just taking away electricity taking away my smartphone mm-hmm. which has only been around for 10 years is all you know it's but very hard for, yeah, it now, how do right? you how do you construct a narrative that way. So for me, I can't imagine my world without like running water and like plumbing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Cause I like high showers. And I yeah. go to flush my toilet. And so, um, like that's a reality that I can't imagine like not having, but that's like a real simple thing, right? That's not institutional. It's not. And so we can make these analogies and anecdotes and electricity and running water. And so, whereas I appreciate what NTRI said, which is why I included my sermon. I do think too, um, that to say that might just, might sound as if like we are are putting the institution of slavery on the same level as um as like first world benefits that um you know we have these things we can't imagine our lives without and and I, I as a modern person who looks back on history and you know is appalled by the institution of slavery mm-hmm. by the price of slavery I in no way want to trivialize it right, right. and so I don't think that's what anti is doing at all. And I don't think, you know, that's what any of us try to do, but I do want to be sensitive to people who um, still struggle with America's and the West's past of, of, you know, participating in slavery. Um, yet that was the worldview Paul was in, not only within his society, but all societies. I mean, so he truly couldn't imagine this world without slavery. And so he wasn't trying necessarily to, to rewrite human behavior and he was not trying to restart the way society worked. I do wonder, I mean, I think it's fair to ask as people who read the Bible, if Paul was writing today, um, would he have not gone farther and said, no, 
slaving, slave owning is bad. Like that is awful. Yeah. But because he'd never seen that in his worldview and because he was trying to be hopeful to the Christians who were slaves and because all these different things um, that he, you know, just didn't imagine a world without it. Is that why he said that? And is, how do we then deal with that as Christians now? I think that there's either kind of two ways of operating. I really, there's three ways of operating, but I think we typically live between um, two ways of operating. Either we just dismiss it, what about it away, forget about it and say like, yeah, I was in the Bible. We don't consider it. I mean, we don't obviously Christians don't believe in slavery or, um, you know, when we continue liking Paul, we read everything else he said, or what another, you know, group of Christians are happy to do is just exclude Paul entirely from the conversation mm-hmm. that, you know, because Paul was chauvinistic or racist or whatever we might want to say about Paul, we just don't consider him as an authentic author or voice for us to use in our Christian um, ideals. And I don't think that's faithful either. Um, so there's kind of two ways of trying to dismiss it of either, well, we don't want, we dismiss it because we, we don't want to deal with it or we dismiss it because it has no place. Like it, he has no place entirely yet. It, it is in the Bible. We do subscribe to the canon. We are affirming that the Bible is God breathing life giving. And so, um, we have to try to put ourselves in the perspective of the author in some capacity. Now that might be impossible for some people. Yeah. It's easy for me, you know, as a, a white guy who's never had any type of institutional slate, uh, any institutional racism, you know, brought against me to have to deal with something like that, to be able to say that. Yeah. But I do want to be sensitive to people who, who might not, ha- it might not be as easy as to be like, yeah, well we can just kind of excuse this language because he didn't, ha- he didn't know any better. And I don't want to be just like dismissing him by saying, Oh, well it's okay. Cause he didn't know any better. Yeah. No, I don't, I didn't in any way see it as dismissing him for saying it's okay making him human, maybe so. And that, I guess, is in the topic of the way we read scripture and about the way we read the whole Bible and everything that's in it. And there are some factual contradictions in it. Um, and that, that's a, can be a new idea. Uh, I think within the past couple of years, that's been a new idea for me and it helped me dig into the Bible a little more. Um, one book that Brooks Kunkel had recommended to me a couple of years ago now was making sense of the Bible by Adam Hamilton, so I wanted to throw that in there here, is if that's a new idea for you about viewing a biblical author as someone in a historical context that is the word is God-breathed and inspired, uh, which I very much do believe, but not necessarily just penned by the hand of God. And when you just think about it in that historical context, for me, it helps me land it in my brain about how to approach the Bible, because what word could if it was pinned by God in that way would possibly transcend all time, mm-hmm. um, the way our cultures change so much. Uh, but to be able to step into the, acknowledge the historical context and then still pull out the way I think you did so well on Sunday, the value piece of that scripture and the, I don't know, the holy devotion. The, the timeless reading piece of it. Of it yeah. McDonald's at the timeless voice. So I just really enjoyed uh, the way you gave it some context, approached that tough topic um, and then really brought out the powerful part of this scripture um, that was so cool. I can just read it in a whole different light now about with my relationship with my wife, um, even my boss and my children. Mm-hmm. So, uh, really cool topic. The second thing we wanted to talk about was an idea that was new to me when you brought up in the sermon called you 
reference this as a household code Mm -hmm. and how husbands and wives should interact, how children and parents should interact, and slaves and their masters. You said that was very common in olden times and even in Colossians. Is I went back and read Woods references Colossians 3 is very similar to this, and it is. (laughs) If I went back and read Colossians 3 and if we believe like we talked about in week one, I think, about this might be written by some students of Paul, they would totally be guilty of a little bit of plagiarism <laughs> in today's uh, educational standards. Um, very similar, but also very cool that the same message is in a bunch of these New Testament letters. It just kind of, for me, it mm-hmm. tied it together. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the household codes and the historical context of that. Yeah, you know, even today there are household codes like that are... It, spoken if not written down or known if not said in a way um, there are things and ways which that our culture understands how children should behave in public or how um, how you know ethically we should act in the workplace um, there there are various ways in which we understand kind of the ways in which we operate according to cultural ethical standards moral standards things like this um, and this was a common practice um, to, to write these down. Um, so there were other people writing these like Aristotle and Plutarch mm-hmm. and who wrote household codes that were, and as uh, McDonald says in her commentary, that they were often in service of the state, in service of the government. So these were things that, and the government then was the ruling authority on the culture and on society. And so your household codes reflected the ways in which the Roman Empire expected its people to behave and act. And so husbands should uh, rule their wives, yeah. wives should submit to their husbands, children basically should be seen and not heard and seen seldomly, right? So like the fact that they were there at the assembly um, is countercultural to maybe the other standards and household codes that were present in the Greco-Roman world. And so this is a way in which the author of Ephesians and Paul and Colossians is identifying ways in which Christians should behave that might even reflect some of the societal norms, yeah. yet give a distinct identity to Christianity. So, yes, our codes, like we might have this how understand a way of being that is ethically, moral, or, or culturally standard, yet there's something more to ours that is different, that sets us apart. And that was a big thing throughout Pauline literature, right? That, that there is a, a distinctness to Christians, whereas God has united all people mm-hmm. under one uh, body of Christ, into one body of Christ, there are things that would, which set us apart behaviorally, belief-wise, um, you know, the way in which, you know, we understand God operating. And this is just one of the ways in which that's kind of lived out and executed. Yeah. the It's just neat. I think if you go and read any of the epistles, this probably isn't the only one. You mentioned Colossians in terms of writing that style of household codes. And for me, it was just, if this whole podcast as an exercise and us just digging a little deeper in the scripture was a cool way to identify kind of the style of writing, something Mm -hmm. I didn't know before. In your NRSV, you said the subheading was household codes, right? The Christian household. The Christian household, right before verse 21, verse 22, whereas my ESV, uh, and this is just a little something we thought was interesting that we talked about in week one or two about different translations and, and just they're a, what was the word you used earlier? Uh, they had to take artistic creative license. license yeah, creative license. license. My translation says wives and husbands. So that's how they read. Right. This is what this section is about. Whereas yours took a more broad view of this is the next section is about a household code where you could read it as, nope, this is how husbands and wives should act. So yeah. 
Well, last week, if you remember, I mentioned you asked me about the parentheses in um, in chapter mm-hmm. uh, four. Yeah, and I said uh, foolishly, I, I can't. Uh, I tried to start talking about. It. I couldn't remember exactly. I was like, well, let me ask Jason Borders. Jason is my New Testament professor and now, you know, one of my closest friends of all time. And I trust him implicitly with like everything. And he listens, he's been listening to these podcasts. And I said, hey, go listen to our podcast and answer my question about parentheses. And he affirmed what I said about the fact that there was no punctuation in Koine Greek, um, which is the language in which our New Testament writers um, wrote. There was no punctuation. And so anytime we have um, verses, chapters, punctuation, parentheses, things like that, that is the interpreter and the translator making a decision to place punctuation there or not, or to use this word rather than that word. Um, as we said in chapter four, whenever Sheila preached about lead versus live, like mm-hmm. one translator choose is So there is kind of an artistic feature to translating in that we have this, there's no, like I said, there's no objective way of reading scripture. Even yeah. there's no objective way of reading it in a different language because you will have your predispositions. And often translations are put together by groups of people who are trying to affirm a certain position. Um, now, some of them are more ecumenical, which is, again, why we prefer, I prefer the NRSV, because there's a lot of traditions coming together with less agenda about what they're trying to promote or mm-hmm. perpetuate. But there are certain translations that have a, a distinct lean or lens because it's paid for by a group of people who all believe a certain way. And I'm not affirming or, or denigrating any, I'm not going to name which one's which, but just the idea that sometimes you, you pay for a certain message to come across. And so one of the ways to do that is right. So the subheading or mm-hmm. the way a certain ways, letters or words we use within the, um, the text. And so that parentheses last week, yeah, was not in Greek. It's not there. It was the translator saying, we recognize this as an aside. It's a parenthetical statement. And so in English, this is how we recognize that. And so the same thing, there was a letter. So he didn't stop his letter and just write random subheadings for this next part of his letter. Who writes a letter like that? That was a translator making decision or translating group making a decision saying, this is what this next section is about. Yeah. And so in yours, um, the translator said, well, this is about wives and husbands. And in mine, the translation said, well, this is about the Christian household mm-hmm. as a whole. And so it's just, it's in a way, you, you see translations in the same way that we see art. It's yeah. a creative group coming together to make decisions about how they want people to see certain things about the world. Yeah, and last week's reading, I enjoyed the fact that the translator put parentheses there when it talked about, it was kind of an aside about ascending versus descending. And it was a way that I didn't get lost. I, without the parentheses, I would have kind of been in left field about where, what was I reading about again? Yeah. Um, so thank you, Jason. That, that was pretty neat. This week's um, nugget of wisdom from seminary, uh, we were going to talk about at the beginning of chapter six starts with a section on children and parents. Verse two, honor your father and mother, parentheses. This is the first commandment with a promise, close parentheses, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Oh, mine doesn't have parentheses there. Really? I didn't realize that yours did. Mine has parentheses there. Uh, So, and again, they see it as an aside. By the way, this is the first commandment with a promise, which you corrected me. I read as this is the first commandment, a promise. (laughs) That's not what they were saying? No. uh, Basically, any way you read this is wrong in in a way. (laughs) So that's not the most helpful thing to say about Scripture. But not only is he saying this is, he's not saying this is the first commandment. Um, commandment, because obviously this is not the first commandment if you look at the Ten Commandments. What he does say is this is the first commandment with a promise. So some of our Ten Commandments and Ten Commandments, some of them just say, here's the rule, and that's it. Others say, here's the rule, and if you keep it, then this will happen. 
And so some of them have a commandment and a promise that goes along with it. So what he's saying you. is, this is the first commandment with a promise. But the thing is, it's not. It is a commandment with a promise, but it's not the first one. Still not even the first one. And on the first commandment with a promise is the one about graven images and like having no idols before God. And this whole idea that like if you do so, then you'll be your family, you and your family will be loved for thousands of generations. That's the promise. And so I truly don't know what he means by saying this is the first one with a promise. Why that's in there? That'll just be one of the. I'm mysteries. sure there's some commentaries that like speak to it, but I I just have no idea. We'll leave it unsolved. And then, Unsolved in, mysteries. and then in verse three, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I would have read that and said, just kind of kept on reading. But you tell me what you pointed out about how that might not align with some other Pauline letters. Yeah. So as we said in week one, ultimately it doesn't matter whether or not Paul wrote or did not write this book. You know, that's up to you as the reader interpreter to decide for devotional readings. Maybe not, probably not. It was the Lord breathed these words, but as a critical reading, there are things that give us indication as to this might not have been Paul writing this. One of the things we know about Pauline letters is that they have an immediate eschatology, and which means that they expect the end times to come like tomorrow, because Jesus said, there will be some of you that will not die before I come back. And so this idea, like the world's ending tomorrow, so we need to do all we can to get ready for Jesus to come back. So we need to cr- convert the most people to Christianity mm-hmm. so that they'll know about it, all these different things. There's nothing about like setting up an institutional church. There's nothing about church structure. There's nothing. And so that's why a lot of these later letters, these other six letters that we are not quite sure if Paul actually did write, the reason why is because they have indications of some sort of perpetuating life beyond the immediate. And so in some of those, like in First Timothy, there's instructions for the church and how to order elders and deacons and these different things about yeah. like church structure. Here, this is a line that says, so that you may live long um, on the earth. Well, there was no expectation in Paul that you would live long on the earth. And there's no language about the fact that, you know, the earth will be around for a while. And so um, this is one of those indicators that maybe Paul was not the primary author. And it's lines like this and other syntax and, and, and other ling- linguistic kind of details that make us think that might be the case. There you go. Interesting things you learn in seminary that you would not otherwise. You should all go. It's a lot of fun. Well, that's not entirely true. It's mostly fun. The choice is yours. <laughs> so Wait, the- what was that? Double Dare? No, um, uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple. The choice is yours and yours alone. I guess so. You remember the Nickelodeon show? Legend yeah, of the Hidden Temple? Uh, I do. Yeah, you're right. That was what that quote Silver Snakes. Blue Barracudas. I did watch a lot of that show as a kid. <laughs> so the third topic we wanted to cover is kind of how Woods ended his sermon. Um, Once you touched on the historical context of the scripture, how do we read the scripture with some of those quotes we talked about? The idea, the biggest word I got out of the second part of your sermon was mutuality. Mm. And I think you got several uh, feedback from several different people about the sermon, about how much they enjoyed kind of naming the that word as a way to describe those relationships between both husband and wives and children and parents, slaves and their masters. When you talked about how getting feedback from mutuality, personally, I thought, surely that's not a new concept. These That didn't jump out to me immediately. I was like, why there has to be a word for that? When I tried to define mutuality in my head, I was like, why not equality? So then you had a great answer to that. So speak on the difference between what equality might make you think of personally, and then what mutuality says to you. 
Yeah, I um, so I obviously did not come up with the word mutuality. Um, it's in the dictionary, and neither am I the first to say you know that's kind of what these verses are speaking about. That is the way I interpret these verses, and it is the way in which. I believe God is calling me to live my life in all my relationships. And this is going to be basically the the crux of our upcoming series. Um, not this week. We're, we're doing a standalone series uh, sermon this week, and then we're beginning a, ser- a series about connections. And this is kind of the, the um, thesis, if you will, the ethos of that entire series, um, is this idea of the way in which we're relationship to others and to God and to self. And from this Ephesians passage, I think we see, and I think I said this in my sermon, the heartbeat of Christianity, the, the kind of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And we live in a world that's really big on individualism and isolation. And we're becoming more and more so individualized and isolated with technology. And I'm not this like doomsday say or like technology is ruining society and all those things. What it is doing, it is creating opportunities for us to interact with people less and really to interact with ourselves less. Because we're distracted, we are constantly bombarded with entertainment or with other things to do, and we're, we're given opportunities to, to basically live life on our own because we can work from home, we can shop from home, groceries can be delivered from home, yeah. we can watch our Netflix on home, we can have a, like, a treadmill at home and literally never have to leave. Mm. And so because of that, we, we're operating in a world in which the Bible never imagined, the Bible authors never imagined there's always been this idea throughout scripture, throughout all of scripture. Um, one of the greatest lenses is that everything that is done is done in community. It's done in a relationship. And for those relationships to be their purest, truest forms, there has to be mutuality between those who are in relationship with each other. Those who are in relationship with God have to have some level of understanding of this concept. Those who are in relationship with others, those who are in relationship with the earth. And we are all in relationship with those things. And so mutuality to me means that you are willing to sacrifice for the other. Uh, the, the difference to me in equality and mutuality is equality is something I think that we should strive for in a lot of areas in our life. Yet it almost assumes that there's a scorecard going on. It assumes like yeah. I have so many points or I have so many dollars, I have so many of these things that I have to help the other person get to where I am. And I don't think that's what mutuality is. I think mutuality is the denial of self and the willingness to sacrifice Loving relationships that express mutuality are relationships that are built on sacrifice. And when you sacrifice for someone you love, and so in particular with this language and then part of my sermon about your spouse, um, you're not keeping up with how many times you've sacrificed for them compared to how many times they sacrificed yeah. for you. You're not trying to um, make them do something because it would be better for you. You're constantly pouring out of your own self. And if you're in a relationship of mutuality, the other's doing the same thing. And so this relationship is reciprocal. And so you don't have to worry about, am I doing, is, is the other person doing their part? Because I'm definitely doing my part. That's not a mutual a relationship based on mutuality. That, that's a relationship based on scorekeeping. Yeah. That's a relationship based on um, fear and scarcity. And the gospel invites us into an abundant life. And part of that abundance is it's okay to give away power. It's okay to give away possessions. It's okay to give away ourselves because other people are doing that for us. Yeah. There is a fear in that if if we don't trust God, if we don't have faith, if we don't believe in the other person, um, and that will draw us back into scarcity mentality. And that is, I think, the way in which most of the world lives. Most of the world sees commodities, sees everything as a commodity that needs to be, you know, stockpiled and resources are limited. So we need to make sure that we consume them in the ways that are best and most beneficial for ourselves and our families. Yet the gospel invites us into a world 
that says, I'm going to give of myself. I mean, in Acts, they're sharing everything, right? Yeah. They're, they're giving, they say they share, it says they share all their possessions. Um, and in these relationships, in a, in a relationship of mutuality, um, it is saying, there's, you know, there's nothing about myself that I want to, you know, succeed more than I want the things for you to succeed. It, it just exudes love and grace, kind mm-hmm. of the themes that we've been touching on when you describe what mutuality is. Whereas what I hear, equality, equality isn't a bad thing, but it's rooted in justice and, and fairness and everyone having a fair go and equality is a good thing in the world, but it's not, hearing you describe it, it's not how you would want to describe or how First Corinthians describes love or your marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not saying, well, you know, love is patient, love is kind. That That's not necessarily equality. So mutuality, that you didn't invent the word. I didn't mean to give you too much credit, but <laughs> it is a really cool word um, to describe these relationships. And once you look at the historical context, acknowledge that it's just, it's a very cool scripture um, about husbands and wives uh, as any married couple. I think you could go back to this uh, time and time again to just remind yourself how much Christ sacrificed for the church and his bride and how much we need to. Um, yeah, that was my favorite line that I quoted out of all the, and I did quote more people this week, right? I, I, you know, I'm not afraid to say that I was nervous about this sermon and people say, why are you nervous? You did a good job. And I'm like, well, I put a lot more time than I normally do because because I was, you know, this is a very diff- different type of sermon to preach. Mm-hmm. It's not all about inspiration. It's trying to contextualize things. It's trying to, to talk about problematic text. And I think as preachers, we don't often preach on problematic text because they're harder to preach about, right? And so I appreciate the affirmation um, and I, I'm thankful for that. But I also know that it was not my own voice. Um, that I was bringing into the, this sermon. I was trying to bring in other voices as well. And so by bringing in N.T. Wright and McDonald and um, Richard Rohr, my favorite quote of all of them, though, was the, the first being, the church uh, became the bride of Christ, not because it was dragged off unwillingly by force, but because he gave himself totally and utterly for her. Her being the bride of Christ yeah. and being the church. And I think there's this idea um, that because Christ is the head of the church, that Christ is in charge in this kind of patriarchal way, that Christ can tell us whatever Christ wants us to do. But that's not the way that God sees the relationship. God mm-hmm. sees the relationship of, in my freedom, I gave ultimately everything for you. And my hope is that you'll do the same for me. Yeah. And it, th- that's why we still believe in free will, right? Is that if God forced us to do that, if God forced us to say like, well, I've already predetermined everything for you type deal, mm-hmm. then, then that would not be a, a relationship of mutuality. That would just be a relationship of patriarchy. That'd be a relationship of, of forcefulness. But God said, "I'm giving everything." I mean, literally, we say, you know, God died on the cross because Jesus was fully divine, and so like God gave everything for us. And it's not demanding us to do the same, but it's inviting us to do the same. And that's what mutuality is. That's such a good metaphor. I mean, Christ certainly led the church, the people of his time, while he was on earth. That's that was is what he did. He was showing us how to live. But ultimately. He didn't end his three years and say, all right, this is everybody's doing it starting now. Yeah. He died for us mm-hmm. uh, and not, you know, in any forceful way. He let us, you know, have the will to do that and showed us grace when he rose again. Yeah. Well, Todd, this has been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you taking a lot of time, a lot of time out of these past four weeks and um, spending it in these conversations. Shout out to, to Micah Wright. Thanks for letting us borrow your extra microphone. I hope the audio quality is going to be a little bit better this week. Um, and so a lot of people have 
affirmed what we're doing. A lot of people have asked questions about what we're doing. And it just is a testament that this is a such a faithful church in trying to follow the will of God for our lives and to be in community with one another and take the Bible seriously. So, Todd, I appreciate you doing this. Happy to be a part of it. I hope in, in some way it can... Uh, grow our Dolphin Way community, our conversation about the Bible, and uh, just the good and awesome things that are happening in our church. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Amen.